Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words, so listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. A Million Other Choices is a true crime podcast, and as such, we do discuss some dark topics that might be triggering for some. As you are a true crime listener, I support you in your curiosity. However, having lost a family member to homicide, my message is always to remember not just the victims, but the families and friends left behind, and also the officers, detectives, and prosecutors that work tirelessly for justice. There are links to make monetary donations in the show notes, but more importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends and press that fifth star on your listening platform to help me grow the show. I hope you enjoy the following episode. is a million other choices and I am your host Kim Today is a case suggestion from Tracy from her hometown of Salt Lake City, Utah, who I'm sure has been waiting forever for me to get to it finally. It is a fairly well-publicized case, but there's lots of things to unpack in it. Once I started digging into it, I did remember it from another, either from another podcast or TV Dateline type show. But because it was a case suggestion, I tried to do a deep dive to get all the facts on it. It is a case of a liar, liar, pants on fire, and a good reminder that when you tell one lie, you have to tell another lie to cover up the first one. And I actually remember, I'm going to tell you this little story. I know I'm not supposed to do a bunch of jibber-jabber, but I remember when I was in second grade, I was new to Calgary. We had just moved that summer from BC, so I was about seven. And that was back when we still had show and tell, if you guys remember that. So if anyone from my elementary days is listening right now, I'm going to come clean about something. It was a few years late, but anyways, that... On this particular morning, I didn't have anything for show and tell because I kind of forgot about it the night before. And any of you that know me know that I take assignments very seriously. So I'm scrambling to think of something and and suddenly it's my turn. And in this panic, I told my entire second grade class that we had just gotten a new puppy. And we didn't actually get a new puppy. In fact, when I was growing up, we never did have a dog. Anyways, so I I said it. It was it was too late. And so then I just obsessed over this lie like all day and all night. And finally, in the middle of the night, I woke my mom up in, in tears telling her that I had lied to my class and how I was going to go to prison or something. Like I just, I, it was the worst thing that I could think that I had done. And in my mom's sleepy state that was 
that she was in, she said, this is the advice that she gave me. She said, well, just tell them that it died. And so I did. The next day, I told my class that my new puppy that we got was just hit by a car and had died. And the worst part of that was that years later, when I was in high school, this girl, Stephanie, said to me one day that she still remembered the poor puppy that died when we were kids. And I I looked at her like blankly. I I didn't know what she was talking about. And then it all came back to me. And I didn't have the heart to tell her the truth. I mean, at 16 years old, all you think about is what other people think about you. So I, I don't know. I just mumbled something about, yeah, it was tragic. Anyways, Stephanie, if you are listening, I am sorry that I lied. And then I told another lie to cover up my first one. But at least I didn't murder anyone. Now let's get to somebody who did. This is the murder of Lori Hacking from Utah. Before I start, I just have to quickly go back to last week for some of y'all non-Canadians that listened to the Adele Sorella case. I forgot to mention that here in Canada, you have the right to not answer any police questions when you're interviewed and to ask for a lawyer, and police have to give you that opportunity. But they can still legally continue to ask questions and probe you for information, even after you've spoken to your lawyer and said that you're not going to be answering any questions. Um, then if you do blurt out something, then it is admissible. So I just wanted to mention that if you were wondering why the detective in that story kept poking at her after she'd said she wasn't going to say anything on the advice of her lawyer. That just kind of seemed like an important thing for me to mention for those of you that maybe didn't um, know that about our Canadian law here. Anyways, Lori Hacking was born in Los Angeles, California on December 31st, 1976. Uh, so she's a New Year's baby, same as Tim, who's also a New Year's baby. She was adopted as an infant to parents, Thelma and Araldo Soares, who had immigrated from Brazil. Araldo was a Spanish and Portuguese teacher for the Sunny Hills High School. Uh, Araldo had met Thelma when he was working as a missionary in Rio. They divorced in 1987, and her brother Paul, who was a few years older than Lori and also adopted, stayed with her dad and stayed with their dad in California to finish up his last year of high school. And Lori moved with her mom to Orem, Utah in 1988, when she was about 12. And she went on to become a popular student winning class president in the ninth grade. She graduated from Orem High School in 1995 and went on to a scholarship at Weber State University. And follow the following year, she transferred to the University of Utah. Uh, She graduated in 1999, having received a number of awards, including the University of Utah's President's Award for Outstanding Scholastic Achievement. So she was one smart cookie. After graduation, she worked for American Express and then moved on to a job at Wells Fargo as a trading assistant. During high school, she dated a boy named Mark Hacking. They were completely inseparable from the moment that they had met, and in August On August 7th, 1999, just after Lori's college graduation, they were married in the Bountiful Temple of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which was a Mormon church. She has always been a very active member of the church. So Mark and Lori were kind of that perfect couple. 
those couples that they just sort of melt together and just seem made for each other. Mark was always doing sweet little things for Lori, and the two families became very close, spent a lot of time together as well. And Mark would often help Lori's mom with repairs around the house and that kind of thing. Lori referred to Mark as a big old teddy bear. Mark was outgoing and very gregarious, and Lori was a little bit more reserved, so they were a really nice balance for each other. Now, Mark was still in school at this time um, at the University of Utah. He had plans to go on to medical school. My daughter has the same plan, so it's a lot of school before you even get into med school. So he would have still had probably a a few more years to go uh, when they got married. And now Mark Hacking had been a perfect match for Lori. Mark's dad, Douglas, was a respected pediatrician. His mom, Janet, was a nurse. And then he had three brothers and three sisters. So it was a bit of a brood. All three of his brothers were also very accomplished. One was a cardiologist, another an engineer, and one of them, and one of the brothers had a really good government job. And then, of course, Mark's going to be a doctor as well. So, and all of them are good and devout Christians. I mean, who wouldn't want to marry into that kind of family? In the summer of 2004, after five years of happy marriage, things were going to get even more happy when Lori learned that she was five weeks pregnant. They were also preparing to move to North Carolina because Mark had finally graduated from the University of Utah with honors no less in a degree with a degree in psychology. And then he planned on attending medical school at Chapel Hill. So things couldn't really have been looking more positive for the couple at that time. And they had also taken up running together and had participated in a few 10K runs. So they're in the best health that they've ever been. They're pregnant. They're packing for a new adventure. What could possibly go wrong? Well, on the morning of July 19th, 2004, Lori got up early and left the house around 5.30 a.m. for her daily jog at a park called Memory Grove. Uh, which was the same park she always did her morning jogs in. And she was, so she would drive to the entrance of the park, um, park there and then get out and run on the trails. So normally she would go for her jog and then she'd come home, get changed and ready for work and wake Mark up. But that morning Mark woke at around eight o'clock and realized she hadn't woken him up. So he figured she'd maybe just let him sleep and went right from her jog to work or something like that. So he played a little Nintendo. And then he went out to shop for a new mattress that they needed. And while he was out shopping, he called the Wells Fargo just to ask Lori something around 10 a.m. and talked to Brandon Hodge, who was one of Lori's co-workers. He was the guy that Lori was training because he was because they were leaving to North Carolina. Now, he tells Mark that she hadn't come in yet. So Brandon passed the phone on to Lori's boss, Randy Church, who knew that Lori was usually quite punctual Uh, and would call normally if she was running late. And Mark tells him the whole story about how she'd gone out for a jog and she hadn't come back yet. And Randy said, you know, you really should call the police. So Mark did call the police dispatch line immediately after hanging up. Of course, surprise, surprise. They say call back after 24 hours. So instead of doing that, he called around to a few of her friends and family. And then he went to the jogging route that she normally goes sort of, and he said he went up and down that jogging route about two or three times, just trying to see if there was any trace of her. 45 minutes later, he called the police back to tell him that he had just found her car parked at the entrance to the park. 
in its normal place where she would normally park, but she's not anywhere around. And they do send out a couple of officers just to sort of check it out. Meanwhile, her friends and family, I mean, she was very popular in the area. So they're already kind of starting to gather to start searching for her. And now things move really fast from this point on. And some of the things happen kind of simultaneously. So I'm going to try and lay out and what I think the actual sequence of events is. One of the officers that they sent out was a detective named Kelly Kent. That's Kent, K-E-N-T, not what you think you heard. Kelly is an amazing detective that has a nose for sniffing out things that just don't seem right. She meets Mark at his place to get some background information and knows around a little bit. Husbands, of course, are always the first suspect, even if this was a perfect marriage by all accounts. Kelly asks Mark if they can come into the apartment and have a look around to see if they can get any clues as to where Lori might have gone off to. And the very first thing that Kelly, who, like I said, has a nose for stuff, sees a very large bouquet of flowers on the table. And Kelly thinks to herself, those don't look like I'm sorry I forgot to take out the trash kind of flowers, but more I'm sorry I really screwed up big time kind of flowers. So maybe things weren't perfect. Kelly notices a few other things, like that Lori's wedding ring was left behind. And the bathtub smelled really strongly of bleach and was sparkling clean. And when she looks into their bedroom, astute Kelly sees that there are fresh sheets on the bed. No bedspread, just the sheets. But what strikes her as odd about this is that she can tell by the creases in the sheets that they were put on fresh out of the package. Brand new. Even if most people wash their sheets when they put new bedding on, not everyone does, but they weren't slept on. Also, strangely, Lori left her purse behind. Not that people jog with their purse, but if they drive to their jogging spot, they need their license, don't they? And when they, like when I go for a walk along Fish Creek Park, I'll put my purse into my trunk and then just take my key fob with me. Now, speaking of car keys, yeah, those were in her purse too. So Kelly thinks it might be a good idea to look in Mark's car. Meanwhile, officers at the trail where Lori was jogging, they take a look in her car. Nothing out of the ordinary, no blood door, window tampering, nothing like that. Now, I am five foot seven and Lori was five foot four. So just a little bit shorter than me. And Tim is six foot tall. And so is Mark. And whenever I get into my car after Tim's driven it, I have to move the seat way up and adjust all the mirrors. And interestingly, the seat in Lori's car is pushed back way too far for Lori's five foot four frame to drive it comfortably and the mirrors are all skewed for someone much taller. Back at Mark's car, Kelly finds a receipt for a new mattress on the passenger seat, which is time stamped for 1023 AM that morning, which is only minutes before his second call to 911. So he stopped looking for his wife for a new mattress So Kelly asks him, what's with that? And he says, Lori had her period and ruined the the old one. Well, that makes sense. I'm sure in their five years of marriage, it was the first time she ever had her period unexpectedly at night. And it hardly ruins a mattress. 
and certainly not urgent enough to run out and replace when you don't even know where your wife is. And also, she was pregnant. So the last time that that happened to me, I had a nine-month reprieve from periods. If you need a new mattress, why wouldn't you just wait until you moved? I mean, why would you lug a mattress with you if waiting to buy it is just one less thing you have to move with you? They also found a hunting knife with a little bit of blood on it beside their bedside table. I'm sure you can see where all this is going. While Kelly is sniffing out with her detective nose and questioning Mark on his timeline, she takes him down to the station to do a lie detector test. Meanwhile, thousands of volunteers, unaware of the police mounting suspicions, organize a search of the wooded park that Lori was last reported jogging on. Lori's parents, Mark's parents, no one had even an inkling that anything was up with Mark. So now, remember, this is all day one of Lori's disappearance. Police end the day by taking with them just a couple of things to look at a little bit more closely. The dumpster from outside their apartment building, a few items from inside both Lori and Mark's cars, a cut-up mattress that they found in a dumpster at the University of Utah Hospital, conveniently the same hospital that Mark was currently working at as an orderly, a clump of dark hair from a Chevron station garbage near the hospital, and surveillance tapes from the hospital, their Mormon temple, which was close to the park she jogged at, and the Chevron station. Now, before I go on, I'm just going to play you some of the interview process about the lie detector test that I managed to dig up, because one, I think it's really interesting. Two, it's kind of telling because I think it lays out a slightly different timeline And thirdly, I just want you to hear how annoying he is with answering questions. So remember, the first call to police came in at 10.07 a.m. The timestamp on the mattress was 10.23, so after he'd already called the police. And then the second call to 911 came in at 10.49. And now that is the verifiable timeline. Um, What I need you to do is kind of just tell me, in your words, what's been going on so far today. Um, my wife got up at five this morning, went running, um, and I stayed in bed. She, I woke up at eight, and she hadn't awakened me when she got home and showered and and went to work at seven. At least I thought that's what had happened. Um, I... Normally, sometimes, most of the time, I drive her to work, and she, she wakes me up when she's ready, and I take her to work. But sometimes she drives, so and today she was driving. So um, um, when I woke up and she was gone, I just figured she hadn't awakened me, just let me sleep. And so I got up at eight, did some things. I um, played my Nintendo a bit and we needed a new mattress we decided to get one so I went and we we had been shopping around looking at different places and I had found one what time was that? uh, I I left my place at about 9 drove around most of the places were were, uh, Closed where I was looking, but they uh, one place said on the door that they were 
they would open at 10. But I got what there. What place was that, you know? I, I, I can't remember the name, but it's it's right next to R.C. Willie. Okay. Um, One place had a sign. It said 10, but I was... I was there at uh, probably a little after nine, and the door was open. I went in, and someone helped me. To which was it going to say? Which RC Willie was this by? Twenty first South. One there on three hundred West, or no? Yeah. 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 Okay, so you go in there because the door's open. And they had the mattresses we were looking at. They were sort of um, uh, extreme comfort or something like that. And uh, and it was a good deal. So How much did you pay for it? I paid like $500, somewhere around there. And they had... Um, we needed new pillows too our pillows were pretty shot and I bought two pillows and they were something like $49 a piece or $50 a piece or something okay do you have sheets or anything like that to go along with them no you didn't buy any sheets no So I spent about six hundred dollars on the mattress and the pillows. About that. Okay. But you don't remember the name of the place. It's 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 called something like uh, uh, it has something to do with sleeping comfortably or something like that. Like that's the title. Okay, so you buy the mattress. Did they deliver? Did you have to take it home, or how did it work? Took it home. You took it home. And what kind of vehicle? Uh, uh, what time did you leave the store? Let's keep the timeline down here. Um, just nine nine thirty. So he wasn't there very long. Was really quick. No. Okay, so you took the mattress home in your car. On top of my car. On top of your car. Did you tie it down or anything? What you tie it down with? Twine. Do you know where the twine's at now? Do you want to have it, it should be in my dumpster. Okay. Okay, what happened after you got the mattress on? I put it on my bed. I was putting sheets on. Called my wife while I was putting sheets on. Someone else answered the phone. About what time is this? About 10. Hi, this is Ross, the host of Smells Like Humans, a show about interesting and quirky human behavior. 
We bring humor, empathy, and warmth to topics such as relationships, dating, work, self-compassion, weddings, phobias, aging parents, travel mishaps, death, and many more. Ever wonder what happens at a cuddle party? We talk about it. Free-range kids in restaurants? We've got some thoughts. Bedtime stories for adults? We're on it. Light, fun, unscripted conversation and personal stories. Please join us by clicking the link in the show notes. Called wife's cell phone? No. No. Her uh, work Court phone? Phone. So I'm trying to get for a swim in there. Mm, what was the reason for the call? Just to say hi. Okay. Called wife's work, phone, someone else answered. Do you know who answered? His name is Brandon. Do you know him? Mm. My wife is training him. I've, I had never met him. Okay. What did you, What happened during the phone the telephone call? I asked to talk to my wife. Well, I don't remember the exact words. Something he said something along the lines is is Lori okay? And I Brandon said. Brandon asked you that. Yeah, and I said I don't know. told me she hadn't come in. So I went looking for her. Okay, where did you, how did you know where to go look? Because she runs in the same place every day. She, she goes up there every single day? Um, no. Most of the time? Five or six days a week. Okay. About what time was it you left to go look for? Just after 10, just right away. So it was close to 10, 10, 15, 10, 10? Something like that. Yeah. Okay. 10, I'll just say 10 to 10, 15, just guessing. Okay. I'll put a question mark so we're not being held to. Did you see what she was wearing? You're probably given that information, but you didn't. Okay. Any assumption? Does she have like shorts she wears all the time? Does she have different ones? Or different ones. Different ones each day, huh? Doesn't want to get stinky. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so you went looking up there. When did you decide to call the police? Right away. Right. I tried before I left the apartment, but it was busy. So I grabbed my you, phone book. What number did you get dialed, you know? Dispatch. I don't know. The phone was busy, or did it have a recording, or what it was, was it? was busy. Like B, B, B? You don't remember what number it was you called? No, but I called the same one from my car. Okay. How long was it when you called back again in your car? Just a matter of minutes, three minutes, And, minutes. and you got in okay? Okay. So 
So you called before you even got up there to look for it? Okay. Okay, what happened when you got up to Memory Grove? Did you get up there before the police, or about how long did it take you to drive up there? Ten minutes. So now we're around about 10.30, Probably. say. Did you find her car? Mm-hmm. Does she park it in the same place when she goes jogging up there, or...? I, see, I haven't been up there. I don't know where it's at or anything. There's not... It's just on the street. Just is it on the road that goes around, or is it up the canyon? Down, down in Memory Grove. Down at the bottom by the gate and all that? Okay. And that's just where you found it? You're not sure that's where she always parks it or anything? She parks it on that road every time. Every time? I'm just... You, you say the same place. It's on the road. I mean general. Right. Not the same okay. parking spot. Nobody can get there. Right. Okay, when you, did the cops arrive shortly after you, or were they already there? No, they told me they couldn't look for her for 24 hours. That's what they told you on the phone? Okay. So how did you finally get them up there? Other people called. Other people called? You know who? So other people called, and then they said they'd go up there? People she works with, co-workers, okay. but I don't know who. Did you call them and tell them that that's what they had told you or anything? Her worker, fellow workers, or did they all just start calling in on their own? They, when I got to Memory Grove this morning, they knew what was going on because I'd been on the phone with them and I told them what okay. was going out there, and they just showed up. You all know, of her friends? Yeah. Okay. Her friends were at Memory Grove. Do you know how many of them called in? Called the police? Yeah. I don't know. I was up searching when they called and said, the police are here now. They called you on your cell phone and told you. Okay, do you know about what time the cops arrived up there? No mm -hmm. idea. 11. Okay. Okay, and between that time you had been up looking in the, the shrubs and all that? Okay. Okay. Brings us about that's about the, the twist of it right there. Um, okay. I just had to get a basis for the questions. Okay, let me explain the, the test to you. Understand it so you feel comfortable with it and so you won't be afraid of it. Okay. okay? Um, what this is is a truth verification machine. Okay, have you seen movie? Have you ever had a lie detector test, the old-fashioned type? If you've seen them on TV, okay, they have like the, the box and they have all the arms going around, the papers rolling, the guy sitting in the chair and he's all strapped up and all that stuff. Okay, that was developed in the 1930s. Okay, we're hoping technology's advanced a little more since then, and that's what this is. Okay, before we get going, we need to. Take care of some items of business here. How do you spell your last name? H-A-C-K-I-N-G. Okay. okay. This is just waiver form. It's basically saying you're taking this of your own free will. 
nobody's forcing you or coercing you or anything of that nature. Okay. Yeah, you can agree with that. If you can agree with that, just sign that there. Okay. I, I do feel coerced into taking this. And how do you feel? I mean, let, let me explain this to you. Nobody's making you take this test. If you don't want to, you can walk right out that door. Right and now. what happens to me? You walk out the door and they take you back up to your car. And if I refuse, then of course that makes me look guilty. It's not admissible in court anyway. So why do you do it? Just gives us... We trust the machine, the courts just don't. See what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It just gives us something to verify the information we've got so far. And obviously, as you, as you said, obviously, we, we, we got some concerns about this mattress thing. Okay, obviously some concerns are going to come up about that, and we just want to get them clarified. Because we interview people who have killed people all the time, and they don't tell us the truth. That's why we have this machine. You see, you see where we're coming from? If somebody's killed somebody, they're not going to come out and tell us, yeah, I killed them. And that's what this machine is just for. But at the same time, I've got these circumstances that look bad. Mm-hmm. And and I feel like, and then I asked him, I said, after the lie detector test, <clears throat> and I pass it, can we be done with everything? And he said, yes. So mm-hmm. I feel like if I don't take this, then I'm just going to be drilled. Well, here's the other thing. If, if you've got nothing to worry, if you haven't done anything, you have nothing to worry about, even if they do go through that evidence. You know what I'm saying? You have nothing to lose by this. Okay. I don't think I want to take it. Okay. And nobody's going to force you to. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Of course, he said no to the lie detector test. Also, if someone I loved was missing, I would be talking a mile a minute to the police about everything I could possibly think of. And I wouldn't sound like I was answering questions about how to make bean soup. Kelly is like pulling teeth trying to get him to say more than one word answers. Late Monday night or early Tuesday morning, so this was the 20th of July, just the next day, or really that next night, 
Police receive a call of a disturbance at the hotel where Mark was staying while his apartment was under search warrants. They find Mark naked, except for a pair of sandals, wandering around having this nervous breakdown, completely distraught over his missing wife. And he's taken to the University of Theatric Institute, where he's admitted. Adamant that they just need to focus on finding Lori, her parents hold a press conference that day pleading for any information about Lori. And the the search with about 1,200 volunteers continues on the 20th of July and the 21st. And on that day, Lori's parents and her friends are completely shocked and stunned to discover from Douglas Hacking, who's Mark's dad, the hospital, he had said that he had felt a lot of pressure to measure up to his family's eyes. And that while about two years ago, Mark actually flunked out of university and never graduated and never got accepted to Chapel Hill. In fact, he'd never even applied. Douglas said that Mark felt relieved to get that off his chest, but felt in his words, quote, incapacitated with grief over Lori's disappearance. He feels like a heavy load is lifted and has come to an end. But he's, he is still grieving about Lori and he wishes he could be out there. End quote. Now on July 22nd, there was still no sign of Lori, but Lori's family was still encouraging everyone to just focus on finding Lori and not on Mark's career debacle. They are still not convinced that Mark could have had anything to do with her disappearance and are just desperate to find her. On this same day from the hospital, Mark obtained an attorney. But just because he lied about school doesn't necessarily mean he killed his wife. But it's not looking particularly good for him. One of Mark's brothers, Lance, believed in Mark's innocence based on the fact that her car was found abandoned and that there had been... And that there had been one witness to say that she saw a woman that could have been Lori outside the park on Monday and said, quote, I have to base my personal feelings on those facts. In my mind, that leaves an abduction as a strong candidate. The thing that makes me not concerned as far as Lori goes is Mark's mannerisms to Lori have been ideal from the very start. He is a loving, gentle husband. That's the Mark we know. That is the Mark that we see every day. Araldo, Lori's dad, said, quote, Mark is a wonderful person. I love him and I'll stand by him. I think that once you start to lie, you have to keep lying and that sucker will double and double on you. I think he did what he did because he didn't want to disappoint his father. The two families have met together every day. If you were to look into the room, you would see hugs and prayers, end quote. But Police have searched the trash bin taken from their apartment and fear that Lori was in there and she's now maybe in the landfill. So cadaver dogs are brought in to help with the search. Now they don't pick up any scent of Lori at the jogging trail, but police aren't really surprised. They don't believe she ever went jogging that morning. On the 25th of July, Lori's mom makes a plea to Mark at a press conference that she loves Mark as if he were her if he were her own son, and a candlelight vigil is held that night. Meanwhile, Mark's brother, Lance and Scott, go to visit Mark at the hospital, where he was filling his time giving unsupervised and unauthorized therapy sessions to patients under the name of Franz. While the brothers are having their reunion, the police discover from a co-worker of Lori's at Wells Fargo that the Friday before her disappearance, so the 16th of July, she had received a phone call while at work that put her into tears. She told the co-worker that she was okay, but she needed to go home. 
but by nine o'clock on the Sunday night, friends and family that saw her at church and there was, I think there was a going away party um, that because she was leaving to go to North Carolina, uh, that she seemed fine. So whatever that call was about no longer seemed to be an issue. And the police determined that the week before she disappeared, Lori had called Chapel Hill, the med school that Mark was enrolled in, to see if they could get some additional funding or family housing now that she knew that she was pregnant. And the woman at the financing department says that he can't find Mark's file, but she'll call her back. And she did on the 16th, only to inform Lori that Mark wasn't enrolled at Chapel Hill, in fact, hadn't applied, sending her out the door in tears. Mark told her that it must just be a computer error, like it's a glitch and something, they'll get it figured out, don't worry about it. So that's why she seemed fine the rest of the weekend. But Sunday night, something must have happened because Lori wrote a note for Mark, which Kelly found in their apartment, a note that basically said, look, stop with the lies because I can't live like this with someone I can't trust. Change your ways or I'm out. Of course, I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially the gist of it. Actually, what part of the letter did say was, quote, I want to grow old with you, but I can't do it under these conditions. I hate coming home from work because it hurts to be home in our apartment. I can't imagine life with you if things don't change. I got someone I don't want to spend my life with unless changes are made, end quote. Now, that same day, Lori's family called off the volunteer portion of the search because they don't want anyone to find her remains. They no longer believe that she's alive. Cadaver dogs instead are sent to search the landfill. And over the next two days, the search of the park is completely called off. And Lori's family is given permission to start the process of clearing out her belongings out of her apartment. And the family just really fears that they're just never going to find their missing daughter. Okay, so what the heck happened and why? Well, Lance and Scott were able to plead with Mark to get him to confess to the whole story, and what he told them was both chilling and a ridiculous reason for murdering your wife and unborn baby. As we know, Mark had not been accepted into Chapel Hill or any med school, hadn't even applied. And he hadn't applied because he never finished his degree at University of Utah, and he flunked out actually after his first year. He had just pretended to keep going for two years. But he was in pictures in a cap and gown at his graduation. Well, actually, no, he wasn't. He took pictures in a cap and gown and then said that he was sick on graduation so he couldn't go. Apparently, he spent his days playing video games after Lori went off to work. So when Lori called the f- the school to find out about funding, it wasn't a computer glitch that prevented financial aid from finding his file. Lori had suspected something was up, and I think that she had started to suspect that he was lying about stuff well before this. She didn't believe this computer glitch story, and at some point she had written the note that she was considering leaving if he didn't stop with the lies, which he read at some point that weekend. So finally, on the Sunday night, the 18th of July, he told her the truth. They fought, of course. And finally, Lori said, I'm going to bed. Mark decided to play a few video games and was just haphazardly throwing a few things into the boxes for this move that I guess he figured was still going to happen. And while packing, he said he came across his 22 caliber rifle. And like you do, I guess, he shot her in the head while she slept. He wrapped her body in some garbage bags and the mattress topper and then threw her body into the dumpster. 
I think it was the one behind their apartment. He put the mattress in the dumpster at the church and the gun in another one and concocted his story about her going jogging. Now, police and prosecutors know that they probably have enough to convict even without Lori's remains, but it's really important to them and to the family for them to find her. And trust me, as someone who's lost someone to someone else's actions, just having the body to feel like they're they're back home with family is really, really important. As far as evidence, what they did have, besides everything that I've mentioned before, is Lori's blood, which is matched to her in Lori's car on the box spring and the mattress, the headboard and bed rails and some on the bedroom carpet. They also had the video evidence of him for the surveillance tapes going into the Maverick County store to buy some smokes about 18 minutes after Lori had been shot. And in this video, he's like looking at his hands and fingers like he's looking for blood and he was driving Lori's car. Uh, There's also a video of him disposing of the mattress. Mark was charged with first-degree murder, of course, but not the death penalty because they didn't have Lori's body, so they couldn't file a charge of fetal homicide because they had no way of proving Lori was pregnant when she died. At the preliminary hearing that was in September of 2004, it was revealed that Mark had fallen from a roof back when in his early 20s while on a job, which had caused a head injury, and it was this head injury that the defense claimed caused him to flunk out of university because it was too hard to concentrate and then led to this naked nervous breakdown he had. Mark's dad actually spoke at the memorial service that was held in August of 2004. So it seems that the families didn't hold anything against each other. A memorial scholarship was set up in September of 2004 as well, of which Oprah Winfrey donated, I think about 500,000 to. Mark said from prison that he was going to write a book about the case and generously offered to donate the proceeds. I don't think the book was ever written. And moreover, just shut up, Mark. We don't want your stupid book. Fortunately, the police did not give up looking for Lori's body and worked day and night at that landfill. And on October 1st uh, of 2004, Sergeant J.R. Nelson says that, quote, I pulled this group of trash out of the bag and hair came out of the bag. He saw that the bag also contained what appeared to be a human jawbone and some teeth. And of course, those remains were proven to be Lori Hackett. And because of the state of her body, they weren't able to prove her pregnancy or how she died. But at least the family had their daughter to put to rest. On October 30th, Mark, the incredible fudge face that he is, entered a plea of not guilty, forcing the family through the torturous process of a trial. And in the words of Thelma Soraz, in pleading not guilty, Mark continues to hurt us. But they did add a second degree felony charge of obstruction of justice to his charges and decided to seek the death penalty. So Mark mulled that over for about five months, and he decided to plead guilty then to avoid that death penalty. In March 2005, the family decided to take the name hacking off of Lori's gravestone because, as Thelma said, Mark obviously didn't want her anymore, and it now says Lori K. Soares Filhinha, which means in Portuguese, little daughter. Mark hacking was sentenced to a minimum of six years 
to life in prison. Normally, the minimum is five years, but because he admitted to using a firearm, it's six. I'm not sure why killing with a gun makes the killing worse, but I guess it does. Mark Hacking's dad, Douglas, read a statement from Mark to the media saying, quote, I know prison is where I need to be. I will spend my time there doing all I can to right the many wrongs I have done. Though I realize complete atonement is impossible in this life, I have a lot of healing and changing to do. But I hope that someday I can become the man Lori always thought I was. To the many people I have hurt, I am more sorry than you could ever know. Every day my soul burns in torment when I think of what you must be going through. I wish I could take away your pain. I wish I could take back all the lies I have told and replace them with the truth. I wish I could put Lori back into your arms. My pain is deserved. Yours is not. From the bottom of my heart, I beg your forgiveness. There is no such thing as a harmless lie, no matter how small it is. You may think a lie only hurts the liar, but this is far from the truth. If you are traveling a path of lies, please stop now and face the consequences. Whatever those consequences, they will be better than the pain you are causing yourself and others. End quote. Araldo Soares lobbied for a bill called Lori's Law, which would make murderers serve a minimum of 15 years before being eligible for parole. And in July 2005, the Utah Board of Pardons ruled that Mark would not be eligible for parole until 2035, to which Thelma issued this statement. While it is a terrible waste of his life, the decision lifts a great burden from my mind and heart. The six-year minimum imposed by law is an insult not only to Lori and the baby, but to me and my family as well. I thank the members of the State Board of Pardons and Parole for their diligence and sense of justice in dealing with this tragic case. My faith in our justice system has been upheld." End quote. In June 2006, prison officials at Central Utah Correctional Facility in Gunnison, which is where Mark is, discovered that Mark was selling some of his personal items, including autographs and hand tracings, on an online site called Murder Auction, which none of us should ever visit that site. Well, okay, we can visit it, but please don't buy anything off of it. Apparently, he has also gotten a prison tattoo of a bulldozer emblazoned on his chest. It's kind of like the kind of bulldozer that um, they would use, oh, I don't know, to move garbage at a landfill. In July 2014, Thelma Soares was interviewed by Pat Reavy of the Deseret News, and she had this to say. In a way, it seems like it's been forever, because the last time I saw her was on the 4th of July. She and Mark came by, we had dinner here, and we went to the Stadium of Fire. Then in a way, it just seems like it was the other day. I can't imagine how 10 years have gone by. People say you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to get over it. I wanted to slap them because you never get over it. I'm not over it now. I will never get over it. What you get over is the immediacy of it. You get over the shock and the disbelief and all of that panic, that desperation you feel when you can't find your child. You get over that as time passes, but you never get over the loss. I have talked at so many places, I've been to so many places, and I can't do that anymore. I cannot relive all the details over and over and over. Then it brings all that back that I felt at that time, and I don't want to bring that back. I can't live with that. I can live with how I feel now. It's still so hard to go back and talk about those days. They were awful. They were horrible. 
end quote. Now she says she now feels a bit at peace. And even though she's never going to condone what Mark did, she said that she has forgiven him. She says it doesn't make anything that he did right. If you do not forgive something so horrendous like that, it destroys you. You curl up and die inside. That's what it would be like if someone stuck a pin in me, poison would pour out. Oh, she's such an articulate lady. I really like how she speaks. Unbelievably, she actually exchanges letters with Mark from prison and let Deseret News in on one of them. So I'm just going to quote part of it. It says, I hope you're this. So this is from Mark. I hope your health as well as your peace and happiness continue to improve. I think of you often, but I never know what to write. Everything seems inadequate or inoculate, at least with my limited vocabulary. I remember your kindness and acceptance from the time I first met you. I remember the love you showed even when I didn't deserve it. I remember your fear when I told everyone Lori was missing, the anger and despair in your letters, and on the day I was sentenced, I remembered your forgiveness and kindness when I did not and never will deserve them. I did not see the coverage of Lori's search or anything that followed, not until about a year after I came to prison. I see the pain, grief, and anger of victims of loved ones, and I try to glean any understanding of what it was like for you and for so many others. I am so sorry. I know I have said, written that many times, always sincerely, but with less understanding. Sorry is another inadequate term, but I feel that sorrow to my bones. I am very sorry. When I look back, I can't imagine why I made so many terrible and illogical choices. I don't understand my own thought processes or the effects of them on those I loved. None of it makes sense, though you've known that from the beginning. I've been trying I've been trying to make the most of life in here but apathy is a constant threat and sometimes it wins. Hopelessness and helplessness can keep me from doing all I should and I often find myself merely coping. I'm not complaining, this is merely the harvest of the seeds that I sow. End quote. And she says that for, she had to do the forgiveness for her own sake and not for his. Thelma says, quote, people have so many different ideas of what forgiveness means, and I guess it means different things to different people. Does it mean what I think he did was okay? Of course not. Does it mean that I have some understanding of why he did it? Yes. I'm the one who's benefited from that, not him. I mean, he's still in prison. He said in other letters, he calls them monstrous, hideous things that he did. I should never get out of here. I don't deserve to get out of here. He thinks that he should be in there for his life. End quote. I just, I just find her just such a remarkable woman. I think that forgiveness is so hard, um, but so necessary if you want to heal yourself. And definitely don't do it for them, but do it for yourself because I think it's the only way to break the chains of that pain that keeps you held down. And your loved one wouldn't want that for you. So always remember that. And that was the murder of Lori Hacking. I think what's so frightening about this case is the fact that Lori was killed simply not to expose his lies. Like he shot his wife of five years and mother-to-be of his child in the back of the head, risking a life in prison because he didn't finish university. And yet he did finally confess his lies anyways. And Lori sounds like the kind of partner that I probably would have found a way to work it out as long as he committed to telling the truth. And I, I kind of understand how the lie started. But if you can't trust your wife with the truth, 
I just, I just don't get it. I, it just gives me chills to think that somebody I know could be lying to me about something. And how far would that person go to not have their lies exposed? Fortunately, at least for the people in my life, I'm a terrible liar. I can't even look you in the eye and tell you I only ate one donut. Of course I ate three. Who are we kidding? And on that note, and now thinking of donuts, I hope you will join me again next week. Thank you so much for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.